0: As Putin's war in Ukraine continues to rage on more than a year after his initial invasion, the toll it is taking is astonishing. A private Russian army seems to be running rampant without Kremlin oversight. Civilians and civilian infrastructure are routinely and illegally attacked, and the people of Ukraine continue to suffer. To help make sense of it all, I've invited Owen Matthews onto the show. Owen is a longtime Moscow-based, award-winning journalist who served as Newsweek's Moscow bureau chief. He is the author of the new book, Overreach, an astonishing investigation into the Russo-Ukrainian war.
1: after the U.S. warned all day of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine that it was imminent, Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people a moment ago announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation. More than 60 people are now feared dead after the bombing of a school where civilians had been sheltering in eastern Ukraine. Now the Russian attack was on the village of Bilohorivka in the Donbas region. The Wagner group, the mercenary group, are the lead for that operation in that area. There's about 50,000 troops, about 10,000 of their sort of uh, contractors, 40,000 convicts there. They've also not short sure of arms because they've just had a, a, an assignment of arms from North Korea, probably artillery shells. Now let's uh, return to the news that's broken this afternoon with the International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant for President Vladimir Putin for the alleged trafficking of children from Russian-occupied parts. Of Ukraine. Hi, I'm Owen Matthews. I've been a foreign correspondent for Newsweek magazine for 25 years. I'm also a historian. I write books and journalism about Russia. And my latest book is called Overreach. It's about the invasion of Ukraine. And it has been hated and reviled by the Kremlin. It's also annoyed a lot of people in the US and also has attracted some criticism from Ukraine as well. So, sorry, not sorry.
0: I'm really excited to have you on right now. We have so much to talk about, and I want to get to the book. But will you just give my listeners a brief just idea of who you are?
1: Hi, it's great to be on, Alyssa. My name's Owen Matthews. I'm a historian by training, but I spent most of my career as a journalist, 25 years with Newsweek magazine as Istanbul and Moscow bureau chief, and I've been writing about Russia on and off since 1995 and I've been living there for much of that period too and my latest book is called Overreach and it's a story of how the war started it's a basically an investigation not just of the history of the conflict but actually what happened inside the Kremlin and crucially trying to get at what happened in Putin's head plus it's a history of the first six months of the war reported from both Moscow and Kiev
0: there's obviously a lot to unpack here. And I'm wondering if it's even possible for you to give us a bit of a just an overview of what Russian political society looks like right now. Who are the players? How does that power structure even work? Just fill us in. Give us a brief education on just the political society and what it looks like in Russia.
1: The first and most striking thing that is important, not just in terms of color, but in terms of strategy and politics, is that when you go to Russia, and I've been there three times since the beginning of the war for about a month at a time, most recently in October, the weirdest thing about Moscow is that the war is close to invisible. Not invisible. There's still a few signs of it. But there is zero sense in Moscow at the moment that is the capital of a country that is fighting the biggest war of the 21st century. People don't talk about it. People sort of push it to the back of their minds. The bars are full. The clubs are full. The restaurants, the shelves of the shops are full, by the way, full of imported Italian parmesan and so on and all the fancy shops. War is basically not discussed. And that's entirely deliberate. And it's important to remember that before we discuss anything about the power politics or the Kremlin or so on is Ukraine, obviously, is fighting to the very limits of its ability and heroism and struggle. It is a totally mobilized war economy. The entirety of Ukrainian society is fighting this war. That's not the case with Russia. And there's an important reason for that, is that Putin is attempting to fight a limited war. He doesn't want this to spill over into serious social unrest. And in order to achieve that, he's kept the amount of people mobilized in the big cities, Moscow and Petersburg to a minimum. He mobilizes guys from poor regions, ethnic minority regions, doesn't mobilize Muscovites. So obviously, Moscow is not Russia. That's one of the first things to remember. It's what all historians and journalists will tell you. It's a different place. But it's super important to remember that the main constraint on Ukraine is material. They're fighting with as much as they can. And the only thing that's stopping them is a lack of material, basically war material. The main restraint on Putin is political. He wants to fight the war and make as many gains as possible, while at the same time not disturbing Russian society and kind of making out that it's business as usual.
0: It seems unfathomable to think that He is capable of keeping things so on the down low, so separate. Especially when you think about the way information travels in our modern society, in a modern, technically advanced society. Is it just that it has always been the way that he has controlled the information? Or is it business as usual? Or is this something that he has had to create and work towards right now for this war?
1: that's a really good point, Alyssa, because it should really define what business as usual means. So for the Russian media consumer, anyone who switches on a television in Russia, they have seen for the last eight years just a steady diet of like total hysteria about Ukraine, a steady diet of total hysteria about Western aggression. That's a stable thing that has been fed to Russians since 2014.
0: To justify going to war with them? So these seeds were planted seven years ago.
1: The war began eight years ago. The war began nine years ago when Putin invaded Crimea. Ever since that moment, the Russian media landscape has been just saturated with hysteria. And so the clips that you might see on Twitter or on YouTube of these sort of crazed Russian propagandists, you know, calling for nuclear war, let's nuke L.A., let's nuke Paris. These people, they've been actually saying that for years. So from the point of view of your average Russian guy switching on television, It's not that they don't know there's a war on. Yeah, there's a war on. It's at the top of the news most days. Not every day, by the way. But the point is that actually it's something that they've been used to. But crucially, they don't really feel it very much in their everyday lives. In this single-room flat in Moscow, fitness instructor Oleg's two television sets are always on. I want to stay informed. The fear that some idiot could press a button and start a world war is very much still there. He gets all his news from Russian state television, which continually broadcasts Kremlin propaganda. In other words inflation they have inflation but it's 12% actually lower than in lots of european countries in britain it's over 10%. The economy has actually weirdly managed to survive sanctions for complicated reasons but we can discuss that later. The sanctions really haven't affected the quality of life. The one thing that the Russians really did take notice of was on 21st of september I was actually there on 21st of september Putin announces a partial mobilization of 300,000 people out of 144 million of reservists that have some military experience and that did caused some local protests, it caused some ripples, it caused several tens of if not hundreds of thousands of young men to flee the country. But from the point of view of the average Russian person who can't afford to or doesn't want to or is too rich to leave, they prefer to tune it out and you definitely can tune it out.
0: I want to get into your book, Overreach. You start out the book talking about trying to schedule a meeting with someone who had once been your friend, but who had changed. Will you tell us about them and what that attempt revealed to you?
1: That's a great place to start, Alyssa, because the guy I'm talking about is a writer, a very famous Russian writer. His name is Zakhar Prilepin, and he's a curious guy because he actually began his political career as a strong opponent of Putin. He was a young officer in Chechnya of the paramilitary police. It's called the Oman. This is the veteran who served in Chechnya during that disastrous, ultimately successful, but very bloody war of 1999 to 2000. He starts his political career by being a member of the nationalist opposition to Putin, the nationalist opposition. In other words, these are people who think that Putin is not going far enough, that Putin is like sort of namby-pamby, that he needs to step up and defend Russia. And over the years, the really striking thing about the Kremlin is that people tend to forget, actually, that the West believed that Putin was like the sort of began his career back in 2000 when he was elected as like the continuity of candidate, Yeltsin. He was like considered to be pro-Western. And there was even talk, by the way, bizarrely enough today, of Russia even joining NATO. They were even talking about that. Suddenly, Putin, you know, for the first 10 years that he was in power, was actually playing that big power game he was hosting, the then G8 summit, did a state visit to London and so on. But that changed. And after 2014, especially when he took a snap decision to invade Crimea, what you see very clearly is that the rhetoric and actions of the Kremlin start moving towards the rhetoric of people like my friend Zakhar. So actually, what used to be a sort of outlying position, like back in the 2000s, like, you know, Putin should step up and Russia is an imperial superpower, actually became Kremlin policy. So now Zahar Pilipin is a well-recognized mainstream political figure. He's on the Russian television all the time. But the reason why I was interested in talking to him is I'm curious as to what people like Zahar Pilipin are going to do next. because. What they represent is one of the futures of Russia, which is much more scary than the current Putin regime. Let me say that again, just so nobody's in any doubt. There's a very real possibility that what follows the Putin regime could be scarier than the Putin regime. And the reason for that is that there is a, quite a strong base of ultranationalists who criticize Putin for not being strong or aggressive enough. Amazing, though, that may seem that really exists. That's a kind of a thought that's strategically important right now. It's not just historically important, it's strategically important right now, because I think a lot of people, both in Washington and in Europe, are actually concerned, their main concern in the end game of this war is exactly what General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, started his first ever briefing to Joe Biden about the imminent possibility of war back in October 2021. Milley started his briefing to Biden with the words, how do we avoid this turning into World War Three? And one of the ways in which it could turn into World War Three, and one of the things that is a very real danger in the end game of this, is regime change in Russia. Canada's foreign minister came out and said, Our goal, you know, our end game is regime change in Russia. Well, fine. I mean, we all think Putin is egregiously awful. But actually, I think one needs to think quite carefully about what removing Putin really means, because the nationalists' opposition to Putin are far stronger than the liberal opposition, people like Alexei Navalny, the documentary film about whom just uh, won the documentary Oscar.
0: And let's talk about Wagner, the group and its leader.
1: Wagner is one of the most extraordinary phenomena of this whole war.
0: Let's talk about the Wagner Group. Secretive Russian mercenary group. shadowy private security company that has ties to the Kremlin. Wagner Group has a gruesome reputation. The Wagner Group has been around for about 10 years. And its forces have shown up in all sorts of places, from Syria to Mali
1: to Mozambique. What Wagner is doing is essentially acting as a proxy for the Russian government in different armed conflicts and one of the clearest indications of just how profoundly rotten russia's society and politics are in the late putin era is the rise of wagner wagner was founded by a literal nazi a guy called dmitry utkin who's a lieutenant colonel in the russian special forces and you can tell he's a nazi because he literally has a nazi eagle tattoos on his chest and shoulders
0: that would be a dead giveaway
1: he is a Nazi, and he's called Wagner, by the way, because he loves Nazism, and he's not like an opera fan, I promise you that. Wagner is actually a person, the founder of this group, and it was funded by this sort of shadowy, he's called an oligarch, but he's really just a businessman who was close to Putin, that made a lot of money through army catering contacts, and just as with lots of top businessmen in Russia, he was asked as his kind of unofficial tax, his unofficial sort of country club membership of that inner elite, was like to fund something on behalf of the Kremlin. So what he funded was this paramilitary group, which recruited mercenaries from veterans of the uh, Russian army that he sent to fight in Ukraine in 2014, 2015, when the Russian army was pretending it wasn't there. Well, in fact, the Russian army was not there. Officially, it was there undercover. Plus, you have this mercenary group, That sort of operates as a deniable arms-length thing, even though they were in Russian special forces camps and so on. They are supposedly deniable. They then went on to fight all kinds of wars in Africa. They fought in Syria. They fought in Libya. They fought in Central African Republic and so on. But when the war breaks out in 2022, Wagner is given a license to recruit prisoners from Russian jails in order to fight on the front lines. And Dmitry Prigozhin is extremely well-placed to do that because he himself, Prigozhin himself, is a former convict. And there are several very chilling films of him arriving in his helicopter at various Russian prison colonies, addressing the prisoners and saying, you can redeem your crimes by risking your lives and spilling your blood. And he's recruited, the numbers are a little shaky, between 11,000 and 40,000 prisoners to fight on the front lines. And they have been sent to the thickest of the fighting, currently in a guy town called Bakhmut, and they've been just mown down in droves. But the whole point is, and why this is an important indicator of how Russia today works, is they're expendables. Army of expendables. No one cares. They're convicts. So you can kill as many of them as you like without upsetting taxpayers.
0: I mean, I feel, and this is definitely probably get letters about this, but I feel like there is expendables in every superpower. We have it in our country, whether it be through our healthcare system or our educational system, the people that get left behind, the people that are forced to be in the front lines of whether it be health and sickness or engaging in war. I want to try to understand, because you write in Overreach, that prior to the invasion, there was this narrow place in Russian society where people could speak freely, even in opposition to Putin and the Kremlin. And then following the invasion, people no longer knew if that was safe or what was safe. And it feels like that's reminiscent, at least how we perceive it to be, how we understand Soviet life to be. Do you think Russian society has retreated back to that place? Are people turning other people into, you know, security forces, or is it something just less than that? Is it not as premeditated?
1: Yeah, for sure, Alisa, you put your finger on it.
0: Psychology professor Samuel Hunter tells VOA, saying this kind of leader looks to the past. So they will talk about a time when things were better. They will talk about a time to return to. If 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 you are to follow me as a leader, then we will return to this era where we had greater influence and power and strength. And so, you know, Putin is a great example of of that. Putin wants Russia to be treated like a superpower again.
1: What's happening in Russia over the last year is just that moment in the movie Back to the Future, where he just like stamps on the accelerator and. Russia suddenly goes from being amazingly, actually, again, I'm just talking about sort of Moscow and elite Moscow and so on, but Moscow was so cool. It was so European. It was really like very free, amazingly creative place. And indeed, as you say, there was actually quite a lot of space for opposition to Putin. So there wasn't thought crime. There were some people who were in prison for being very outspoken, but actually, you actually had a relatively robust tiny but robust tolerated semi-independent media that sort of existed within the sort of pre-war russia and then suddenly you essentially have a kind of takeover of russia by a group of people who the russians call siloviki sila means power but what they're talking about is like securocrats they're people who are around putin they've been literally working with putin since the 1970s and these are old kgb guys literally old kgb officers like putin is himself who have reimposed something that was not really, you know, central or mainstream or certainly not absolute in the years before the invasion. And that was this sort of Soviet-style paranoia and Soviet-style patriotism, military training, kids in uniforms, kids in schools doing weapons training, the sort of parades of citizens on the streets. All this stuff from the Soviet Union has come back the propaganda has just become insanely Soviet, and those, by the way, those independent media and everyone who belongs to the opposition has been completely shut down instantly at the beginning of the war. So the real story, the real tragedy of this war is that the men around Putin, who are all in their 70s, by the way, Putin himself has just turned 70, have achieved what many old men perhaps dream of, but very few actually get, which is to create a future which resembles their own past.
0: That's really interesting, especially when you look at the rise of nationalism globally and the age of those who are clinging on to a way of life that we all hoped we had evolved out of. You mentioned Crimea. That was nine years ago, you said?
1: Yeah, 2014.
0: Walk us through what happened since then. Walk us through Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Did he basically just spring it on everyone, surprise his entire government with very short notice?
1: The very short version is that at the end of 2014, there is a major protest movement in Ukraine, and they're protesting against the president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who had promised his people to sign an association agreement with the European Union, which would have meant among other things visa free travel open customs union type arrangement and basically closer ties with europe he had promised that in the elections he was about to sign it and putin and russia intervene and they make the president of ukraine an offer they think he can't refuse which is they offer him association of their own union which is called the customs union which is putin's kind of little attempt to rebuild the USSR, or reintegrate the countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union closer to Moscow. And Yanukovych basically backs out of the European deal and goes for the Russian deal, triggering enormous popular protests, which stay on the streets of Kiev for 94 days, in increasing violence. It was absolutely insane. I was there. You have five-story-tall barricades on the central square of Kiev. You have sniper fire. You have hundreds of people killed at the end huge, you know, flames. I mean, it's literally urban warfare. But what this is all about is sort of epic struggle over who controls Ukraine. Is it, as most voters, because the majority of Ukrainian voters has consistently been strongly in favor of joining the EU, or is it Russia that controls this country? And in the immediate aftermath of those protests, the president flees and the pro-European protesters triumph. Now, Putin thinks that this is a plot, a coup fomented by the West, and NATO is about to take over Ukraine, and he takes a snap decision to invade Crimea. My reporting, lots of people's reporting, say, This was not like an agenda. This is not a years long thing. Putin had never mentioned it. It was not a big issue. But when that coup, in Putin's view, one of those protests brought down the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, and he flees to Russia, Putin decides in basically one night's discussions to occupy Crimea. And the reason why I'm going into this in some detail is that ever since that fateful evening in February 2014, when Putin takes that snap decision to cross international boundary, to occupy a territory which does not belong to him, that is a first. He has indeed, in 2008, occupied territories that are breakaway territories of Georgia, but he didn't annex them. He didn't make them part of Russia. He made Crimea part of Russia. And he enjoyed a massive surge of popularity.
0: This morning, more unidentified pro-Russia armed militias controlling the streets of Crimea's capital. These troops are standing guard just a few hundred feet away from a Ukrainian naval base. They have twice asked the base command to surrender. So far, they have refused.
1: This is a Russian invasion,
0: the U.S. says. It has no doubt these are Russian forces and has demanded their immediate
1: withdrawal. The Russian military must stand down. The aspirations of the Ukrainian people must be respected. And political dialogue must be allowed to continue. Shortly afterwards, Putin starts to ferment or exacerbate at least Local protests in the east of Ukraine, that turns into a war. Those rebel territories turn into a sort of no man's land, independent of Ukraine, not claimed by Russia, but supported by Russia. And throughout this whole period, Putin's priority between 2014, invasion of Crimea, and 2022, his invasion of the rest of Ukraine, Putin's priority was always to try and keep Ukraine inside his sphere of influence, to try and keep them close. And that's why, curiously, despite there there being kind of a low-scale constant conflict in Donbass in the east of Ukraine during those eight years, actually, Putin would always insist these rebel territories are parts of Ukraine. But why did the Kremlin stick to that line? Because they wanted Donbass politically inside Ukraine in order to continue to disrupt that kind of pro-Western movement. What changes in 2020, basically, Putin realizes that Ukraine has a new president, Vladimir Zelensky. He's very charismatic. He's very committed to the West. But crucially, he's actually conciliatory and champions the rights of Russian speakers in Ukraine. Vladimir Zelensky is himself a Russian speaker. He speaks Russian in his own Security Council meeting. I know that for a fact. And Putin realizes that he's actually not going to be able to sort of mess with Ukrainian politics anymore. All that game that he's been playing for years to put spokes in the wheels to stop Ukraine trundling off to westwards, it's not going to work anymore. There's only one thing left for him to do, and that's actually force the issue to actually invade by force. And in 2022, that opportunity seems to present itself because in the few months running up to that if you recall that the u.s suffers a catastrophic loss of face in afghanistan angela merkel steps down as chancellor of germany europe doesn't have an obvious strong leader and crucially putin believes that his army which has been investing in like mad like crazy over the last eight years is strong enough to do it so he starts the war because he thinks he can win it and he starts the war because he thinks that the West is going to basically back down as they bucked down before all of his previous military adventures in Crimea, in Syria, in Georgia.
0: You think he expected the invasion to go more easily? Do you think that he thought that more than a year later that he would still be fighting this war and even losing by so many measures?
1: Definitely he did not expect to be fighting a year later. That's certainly true. Essentially, the reason that the war was a, such a disastrous failure, the reason why they failed at the beginning is the same reason why, you know, all wars, all invasions go wrong from the beginning. There's a German general called Helmut von Moltke who said, no military plan survives its first contact with the enemy. And that was like true in the 1880s when he wrote it, and it's true today. So what the Russians plan was essentially like a massively aggregated coup. They thought they were just like barreling into Kiev. They had sent at least four hundred mercenaries to Kiev, both Chechens and actual professional soldiers from the Wagner Group, with kill lists of at least twenty-six top Ukrainian officials, including Zelensky himself, by the way. And they went in. It was an airborne assault on an, on a military airport just on the outskirts of Kiev, which they took, but unfortunately, crucially, they didn't hold. The idea was just charge in with a massive surprise attack on Kiev, decapitate the government. They assumed that Zelensky would flee. And in fact, Zelensky's most famous quote, although he didn't actually say, I have to say, according to his aides, he didn't quite say it this way. The summary of what he told the Americans on that first day is, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. And he refused that offer, which the Americans made to him, of fleeing. He stayed. And he made a film of himself on day two, him and all of his cabinet, walking down like a street in the center of Kiev, which is like under attack with Russian paratroopers three and a half kilometers away. He's like on his iPhone saying, we're here, we're not fleeing. And that totally confounded the Russians' expectations. The Ukrainians turned out to be much better at fighting than the Russians expected them to be. And the whole assault, the whole idea, the whole basic sort of premise of the whole invasion was that it was all going to be over in three days.
0: Also today, Russia admitted suffering uh, what it called significant losses on the battlefield as a result of this invasion. Let's listen to the Kremlin's top
1: spokesman. Let's go through it. You've lost thousands of troops. How many troops yes, have you lost? We have, we, have, we have significant losses of troops, and uh, it's, it's, it's a huge tragedy for us. Does Mr Putin worry about ending up in a war crimes court? No, he's not. When it was not over in three days, the Russians didn't have a plan. They had to, like, think on their feet and have been basically making it up as they go along ever since.
0: And isn't that alone uncharacteristic for Putin? It seems like he's just so well thought out and well planned and methodical about things. He just really must have underestimated all of it.
1: Exactly. At least I have to say I've been writing about Putin for 20 years. I, too, am guilty of thinking that Putin is much smarter than he is. In fact, the reason why I was wrong is that Putin hasn't really been very smart. He's just been lucky. He's been lucky. He was amazingly lucky on a lot of counts. First, he's hitherto, before he took on Ukraine, he chose you know, weakling opponents. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. Like, who's going to win that one? Obviously, he just rolled over the Georgian army and actually played those two breakaway territories very quickly. Syria, 2015, Russian warplanes turn the tide of the Syrian war, keep Assad in power, crush the Syrian opposition, like amazing like result. Putin must be so smart. Yeah, but do you know how many planes there were? There were 32 planes. It's one squadron of aircraft. It's tiny. But the thing is, if you have one squadron of modern fighter bomber aircraft and the opposition has zero squadrons, then, you know, you basically brought a gun to a knife fight. You win, right? Yes, Putin had uh, scored an amazing victory in Syria just because the opposition didn't have the fighters needed. He was really lucky in Crimea. Uh, because the only thing that could have really gone badly wrong was not necessarily the Ukrainian military, which was then very disorganized and in a very poor state, but certainly the West could have stepped in and kicked his backside, as the Germans promised to do. The Obama administration, Merkel said, this must not stand; it will not stand. We cannot allow him to occupy sovereign territory. Bloody, bloody, blah, blah, blah. Then what happens a year later? Putin invades in Crimea in February two thousand and fourteen. May two thousand and fifteen. Angela Merkel is signing a 10 billion euro gas pipeline deal with Gazprom because Germany needs cheap gas. Putin is lucky again. Gas wins over principles. Crimea was actually like not smart at all. It was very rash. It was an incredible gamble. But we think in retrospect that he was smart about it because he just happened to win. But it was an extraordinarily risky thing to do. He happened to get away with it. And then what happened in invading Ukraine, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Suddenly, for the first time in his career, he's actually playing with the big boys. He's like in the big time. He's not sending in like 2,000 troops, not sending in like 8,000 troops. He's sending in 180,000 troops. This is World War II style offensive. It's like a massive deal. And this time he completely messes up because actually that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's the step too far that the West is not going to accept. And the West pours military aid into Ukraine and Putin finds himself basically unable to win.
0: Disinformation plays a part in all of this, right? Because Putin tried to justify the invasion by spreading disinformation about the denazification of Ukraine. And the Duma passed a law that changed how journalists could operate. So do the Russian people believe this propaganda? Do they have access to other sources of information? Walk us through that a little bit.
1: It's a really crucial question, because when you look at the poll numbers... Levada is one of the last independent pollsters in Russia. And they consistently report, and their latest polling from February, reports that even after a year of the war, suffering a huge amount of defeats, up to 200,000 killed and wounded Russian soldiers, according to NATO estimates. Despite all of this, up to, supposedly, 76% of people anonymously tell pollsters that they support Putin. So what's with that? There's two explanations. Either they're extraordinarily dumb and gullible, or they want to believe.
0: Which is more dangerous?
1: It's far more dangerous people that delude themselves. Because people who are deluded, you know, for people who are just misinformed, like in the Gospel of St. John, you know, and you shall know the truth and truth shall make you free. Sorry, for most people, most human beings in the world, learning the truth is actually not going to change your mind. It's a classic way that human psychology works. People never like to admit they're wrong. And in a totalitarian society, or in an authoritarian society, which is not totally unfree like the Soviet Union, but nonetheless, neither is it free, propaganda works because people want it to work. And that's a really important part of understanding why Putin has stayed in power for 20 years. He hasn't terrorized people. He hasn't repressed them. He has obviously lied to them. But most of all, he's fed them something that they want to hear. He is a populist. He just takes the deepest tropes of the Russian psyche and brilliantly just recycles them. And in fact, Mussolini said back in 1928, I did not invent fascism. I extracted it from the psyche or the consciousness of the Italian people. And that's really true of Putin's messaging, is that it's all this sort of imperialist nostalgia.
0: Through their invasion of Ukraine, Putin, his inner circle and his generals are now mirroring fascism and tyranny of 77 years ago, repeating the errors of the last century's totalitarian regimes. They are showing the same disregard for human lives, national sovereignty and the rules-based international system. The very system, not least the United Nations Charter itself, that we conceived together and for which we fought and were victorious together, in the hope of saving future generations
1: from the scourge of war. It's a fear of being surrounded. It's a fear of being attacked by outsiders that are trying to do Russia down. It's national pride. The propaganda message works because people want to believe it. They're not being misled. They are misleading themselves. And that's a really key element. In that sense, the most important and the most telling and the most effective element of all of Putin's propaganda is that Russia is under attack by the collective West. That's what is the basic central plank of his messaging. Like We are under attack. And the really surprising thing for me is, you know, being in Moscow, I've been living on and off in Moscow for nearly 30 years. I know dozens, hundreds of people and an amazing number of kind of smart people, well-traveled, well-educated, smart people who definitely should know better. You find people like that saying... Oh, I really hate Putin. Oh, this war is awful. But we had to fight it. You know, now that we're fighting it, we have to keep on with it. So there's always like a sort of even smart people just slide. And I think in the U.S. context, I think you may be familiar with this phenomenon. If people you thought were kind of smart but suddenly come out with some crazy stuff, they vote for people that you do not think have a close relationship with reality.
0: Like a lot of people, I'm looking at Russia's nuclear stockpile and I'm concerned. Should I be concerned? Will Putin use tactical nukes? And if so, what are the ramifications of that?
1: For the first time, you have actually a direct confrontation between a U.S. aircraft, a drone, thankfully, unmanned drone, and Russian fighter jets. We're told that this unmanned aerial drone was flying over international waters, over the Black Sea, just off of Crimea to the west of it, that it was carrying out uh, what they call an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance operation. Uh, This was a, a routine operation, they say. It was in international airspace. But they say that during the course of this operation, the drone was approached by two Russian fighter jets. The jets then dumped uh, fuel over the drone. They flew in front of the drone, and one of them then, we're told, the USS, intercepted it and hit the drone, clipping one of its propellers, resulting in a crash and a complete loss of the drone. It basically never happened even once during the Cold War. Russian gunners shot down a Soviet jet over Cuba in 1963 by accident, actually. But, you know, it's very rare for this kind of thing, stuff to happen. And obviously, it's extraordinarily dangerous for that reason. And going back to what I mentioned a bit earlier in our conversation, you know, General Mark Milley, when he's first talking to Biden in that Oval Office briefing back in October of 2021, and he's telling him that we have intelligence that Putin is building up his troops. One of his top talking points is how do we stop this becoming a kinetic war between Russia and NATO? Because that's going to end in nuclear use or could do. Whether Putin's actually going to do it, I think he's not totally irrational. I think he knows very well that would be close to suicidal for his regime. But on the other hand, the reason why he keeps talking about it is just to draw attention to the fact that russia is not like other countries russia is not iraq russia is not libya russia is not syria you you know you can't just treat a nuclear armed country in the same way that you could treat another country specifically you can't invade it you really can't that's what nukes are for you can't invade russia and furthermore one of the things that's been made really clear is that there should be no direct nato involvement in the war and So underlying every single piece of strategic aid, military aid that's being made to Russia, is the nuke issue. It's always like nukes, 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 nukes. Do we provide A-1 Abrams tanks? Is this going to convince Russia that NATO is directly involved? Are we going to provide fighter jets? So it's the constant measure against which any kind of escalation of aid is measured. The problem is for Putin of actually using nukes is that once you use them they become useless that's the problem it's almost as though there's no such thing as tactical nuclear use it's basically a misnomer because the minute you actually use a tactical nuclear weapon then you can expect retaliation in kind or you know maybe Putin's calculating not that could be the kind of risky sort of throw of the dice that he could eventually make if he starts to lose but the whole point about Putin's nuclear use is that he doesn't want us to know. He wants us to know that he has nukes, but he deliberately makes it unclear the exact circumstances under which he would use them. And that's totally deliberate. If I were Putin, I would, do, I would say exactly the same, because the only real use of nukes is to prevent certain things that you don't want to happen happening, like Ukraine taking over all the occupied territories again. That's comes close to regime collapse for Putin. His life is on the line here. And in a scenario where his beloved Crimea is threatened, even Mariupol, but certainly like Donetsk, there are lots of points at which Putin actually could be desperate enough to use nukes. It's not out of the question. And that's what's so scary about the end game of this war.
0: Speaking of fear, do you fear for your life?
1: In Russia? No. And I'll tell you why, because if I were a Russian journalist, I would definitely fear for my life. If I were Russian, if I were a Russian citizen, personally working for, in Russia since 1995, I've known at least, personally, at least six journalists who have been killed, all but one of them Russian. It's enormously dangerous, and the people, the few journalists who were working were immensely brave. Sadly, most of those people have left, sensibly, because A, there's no for them to work. All those opposition media outlets have been shut down. Also, weirdly, the Kremlin has always been strangely tolerant, or there's always been a tradition of leaving foreign journalists alone. In the Soviet Union, for instance, foreign journalists were basically treated like foreign diplomats. In fact, my whole career, the Newsweek bureau car had diplomatic plates. We lived in a diplomatic compound. You know, you had the diplomatic accreditation. As a foreign correspondent, you had a sort of somewhat semi immune status. I'm a little bit nervous about saying that because that's kind of tempting fate, but I don't think Western journalists are really being targeted right now. But Russian journalists definitely are.
0: Finally, what gives you hope?
1: I wish you hadn't asked me that question. The problem is, all of my observations about the war and about Russia and Ukraine, is that none of it ends in a kind of situation that's good or satisfactory for Ukraine. I can tell you what's been amazingly inspiring during the war, and that is the extraordinary solidarity of the Ukrainian society. It's just extraordinary how strong and actually how very different from Russia, by the way, their civil society really is and how people actually have really pulled together to defend their country and help the defenders of their country. That part's been amazingly inspiring. The problem is, I think, in the most likely outcome of the war is going to be very disappointing for Ukraine. And they're going to cry betrayal. They're going to feel themselves betrayed by the West. But what gives me hope, I think, is actually the fact that Ukrainians are smart, they're entrepreneurial. And actually, once they reconcile themselves to whatever their borders may be at the end of this war, and I seriously doubt they're going to be the same borders as they started out with in 1991, but that's fine. Actually, that's fine, because there is... An argument which was made actually by Zelensky's own first foreign minister, Vadim Pristaiko, he said back in 2019, like, just cut it off. It's a gangrenous limb. Let it go. There's nothing good that's ever going to come from the rebel republics of Donbass. We just need to you know, build a wall and you know, set off on our new journey to the West as an EU member, as a prosperous democracy. That's what we're going to build. I do think that Ukraine actually has every chance to really build itself up as a prosperous democracy and actually show Russia by example that freedom, that press freedom and an open society and free economy that's not run by thieves is actually a better way to live.
0: Well, Owen Matthews, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. The International Criminal Court has just issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin himself over his alleged war crimes. This case relates to Russia's alleged abduction of children. Yale University estimates 6,000 Ukrainian children have been taken to Russia. Kiev officials put the figure at 16,000. The New York Times has previously reported that Russia is expected to face additional charges over allegations that it deliberately destroyed civilian infrastructure. That's illegal under international National law.
0: The world is a dangerous place. It's becoming more dangerous as the political and military forces in Russia grind against each other in its immoral and futile war. Those fractures are spreading, infecting our own government with Putin's sympathizers. What happens across the globe affects us here, and that's why we have to care. It's why we have to continue to support the Ukrainian people. And we absolutely need to make sure that Putin does not win, but also that what remains in Russia after he loses doesn't spiral into global conflict. We're sitting on a powder keg, and too many megalomaniacs are lighting cigars. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Buliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.